Let me open us up with prayer before we get started. Lord, thank you so much for this day and for this community. Lord, we thank you for relationships that are here, um, people who are sharing life together, Lord, people that are learning more about you, what it means to be your follower. Today, as we open up your word, I just ask that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would open our minds, that you'd open our hearts, that you'd give us the word that we need to hear so that we could become more like you, that we could be a blessing to others that we come in contact with. So speak to us now in your son's name we pray. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 37. Uh, this is in the Old Testament if you want to try to find it. Um, you could also follow along on the screen. But let's start in verse 1. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones, say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. And I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. And I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone, and I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breath into these slain, that they may live." So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land, and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, that I have done it, declares the Lord. These are ancient and sacred words. And if we let them, they will form us to be a certain kind of people. And there's all sorts of strange imagery here, right? When we hear that, it's like a ghost story. It's kind of odd and bizarre, the imagery being used here. And it was written by a man named Ezekiel, and we pretty much have the time that he wrote it pinned down to 593 before Christ, B.C., and Ezekiel was on his way to become a priest in Jerusalem right around the first attack by the Babylonians on the city of Jerusalem. The attack came from the east, this big Persian empire. Babylonians come in and they, they win this battle and they take this first wave of captives away from Jerusalem back to Babylon. And this man named Ezekiel is in this first wave of captives. And he gets pulled from his homeland all the way back to Babylon. And this book that he writes, Ezekiel, comes from this experience where he's sitting uh, in this 
Israel refugee camp outside of Babylon, and he's sitting near this irrigation uh, canal, and it's his birthday. The big 3-0. He's about to turn 30. And it's a big deal, not just because he's about to turn 30, but because it's the day that he would have been confirmed as a priest in Jerusalem. And so this is a man whose life has not gone as planned. His life has fallen apart. The dreams that he had, the calling that he had early on in his life, all of that's been taken from him. And it's been five years since it's been taken from him. And he's been living in captivity for five years. And it's his birthday. And he's sitting, probably just staring at this canal, thinking, what could have been? What should have been? And as Ezekiel is doing that, all of a sudden, he has this vision, a dream, And this storm cloud comes, and in the storm cloud are these weird creatures that he starts to try to describe what he sees. They have wings, their faces are are facing each other, their wings are attached uh, together, and on top of the wings is this platform, and on the platform is this throne, and on the throne is this uh, radiant figure that's glowing with fire and light. And as he's having this vision and he's trying to understand what he's experiencing, all of a sudden he realizes that this is the presence of God. This is uh, the, the, the presence and the image of God and his presence is here right now with me at this canal in this refugee camp in Babylon. And all of a sudden this image starts to speak to Ezekiel. Which leads Ezekiel to the question, if this is the image of God, the glory of God, what is God's presence doing here in Babylon? And God comes and he gives Ezekiel a word. And he says, I have a word for you, for my people. If you're Ezekiel and you think this was the day I was supposed to be confirmed as a priest and now all of a sudden I'm having this vision where God shows up and it's the very similar way that he shows up to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's a very similar way to the way his presence would show up around the Ark of the Covenant. And God has a word for Ezekiel and he speaks to Ezekiel. And we get this book which is this basically this telling of what God had said to Ezekiel to tell his people. We call such a character a prophet. He's supposed to be a priest, but now he's a prophet. He has this word for God's people. And God's glory is there in Babylon. Not just in Jerusalem, not just at the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. It's with Ezekiel. And here's the message that God has for Ezekiel. There's hope, hope for Israel, hope for the nations, hope for all creation. But before the message of hope, there's a message of warning. He gives Ezekiel this message of warning. And if you read Ezekiel, what you'll find is that it's like bizarre. The wording, the imagery, the way that Ezekiel communicates the message to God's people, the whole thing is very strange. And the first part of it is this warning, and here's why. The people of Israel, they've lost this battle to the Babylonians, but something worse is coming. There's something worse that's on its way, and God says, I want you to warn the people. Because of the way that they're acting, something worse is on the way. Well, how are they acting? What we find through these warnings that Ezekiel gives his people is that 
the people of God have lost their way. They're called to be this, this kingdom of priests, this holy nation, this blessed to be a blessing, and, and they have moved so far away from that calling and identity as a people. They've become uh, negligent to the poor among them. They don't hear the cry of the oppressed. They've, they find fulfillment in all sorts of other things outside of God, all sorts of idols. They become corrupt uh, by the people around them. There's an arrogance that sets in. And Ezekiel starts to say, watch out. Watch your heart. Your heart is not in the right spot. And something bad's coming. And over and over again through Ezekiel, he's giving this warning, and the people of God will not hear it because of there's this kind of arrogance and entitlement that surrounds them. A haughtiness. A hubris. Started a uh, book club with the, some of the, the men in the church, um, still time to join if you want to, uh, but we're, we're going through this book called Whisper by Mark Batterson, and it's all about how to hear the voice of God, like hearing from God. How does God speak to us today uh, as Ezekiel is speaking to his people? And this book opens up with this story about a doctor, Alfred Tomatis, and he is a, a I, I can't even pronounce it, an otolaryngologist. Yes. So he's an ENT specialist, ear, nose, and throat. Danny, you may be able to pronounce that, yes. Um, and, uh, and has this 50-year career uh, as a specialist for uh, ear, nose, and throat, and has this one really mysterious uh, case that comes in, and it's this famous opera singer. And this opera singer who is like world-renowned is unable to hit certain notes. And his career is in jeopardy. And as he's trying to hit certain notes and he's trying to figure out like what's happened to my voice, um, he thinks it's a throat issue. So he goes to all these different doctors and specialists trying to figure out how do I hit like a certain, uh, these certain notes, what's happened to my voice, do I need to do something, do I need to rest, do I need to get some sort of surgery? And Dr. Tomatis thought it was something else. And so using a sonometer, Dr. Tomatis discovered, uh, and this is kind of incredible, that even the average opera singer produces 140 decimal sound waves at a meter's distance. That's pretty loud. He'd say that's, that's as loud as a, a jet taking off from an aircraft carrier. Uh, th this is a, an opera singer from a meter out. We don't want to sit in the front row, right? It, it's so loud, and, and in fact, not only is it 140 decimal, it's even louder inside the skull of the opera singer. And so as he was kind of like studying this opera singer who all of a sudden can't hit these notes, what he found is that that this opera singer um, had deafened, had become deafened by the sound of his own voice. And because certain pitches, all of a sudden the opera singer couldn't hear anymore, it couldn't produce that sound with his vocal cords, because you can only produce what you can hear when it comes to that pitch. So he was almost like become tone deaf. The very own sound of his voice had deafened him to what he was trying to do. This is called the Tomatis effect. So selective muteness that's caused by selective deafness. You can't hear a note, you can't sing that note. And this Tomatis effect happens, I guess, with opera singers. Um, but what's interesting is there's this, a spiritual Tomatis effect that happens with religious people, with religious communities. When it comes to the voice of God in our lives, it's possible that we've deafened the voice of God with our own noise. We can no longer hear what God's trying to say to us. 
something has been deafened. And with Ezekiel, he's crying out to his people, God has this message for you. God's trying to get a hold of you. God's trying to connect with you because your heart is not in the right spot. And the people of Israel just can't hear Ezekiel. And they just continue in this arrogance, in this hubris, this way of living. Arrogance is something that can be troubling, I think, for all people, but especially God, God's people. C.S. Lewis says that this idea of pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. In Jim Collins' book, How the Mighty Fall, a great book on business and leadership, he talks about when these huge companies fall and collapse. It always starts, the stage one of the collapse always starts with hubris, with this arrogance, this entitlement. And he calls it the hubris that's born from success. Jim Collins says that hubris is defined as excessive pride that brings down a hero or an outrageous arrogance or entitlement that inflicts suffering upon the innocent. uh, Typically, when past accomplishments uh, create a sense of invulnerability and guarantee of, of future success, hubris sets in. It is the false sense of security that we can create something from nothing, as may have been the case when the firm was founded or when it rose from the ashes of a past debacle crisis or decline. A critical difference is that hubris connotes a sense of being the chosen ones, whereas success is based on survival and a strong sense of humility that leaves the possibility of failure as a driving force to overcome the adversity. When I think about God's people in Jerusalem and what Ezekiel is trying to get a hold of them is there's this entitlement that's set in. We're the chosen ones. We get this. We get entitled to this. And they have forgotten their way and their calling to be a certain kind of people that blesses the world. That entitlement has caused suffering around them, especially with the vulnerable. And Ezekiel's trying to get through to them the first half of this book, warning them, and they can't hear it. Proverbs 16 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And as Ezekiel is trying to get a hold of God's people, do you know what happens? Around chapter 33, this man shows up from Jerusalem and he's war-torn and he comes to Ezekiel and he says, Jerusalem has fallen. Babylonians finished us off. They came in, wiped us out. And the temple has been destroyed. The place where God's presence resides has been destroyed. The things that you were warning about, Ezekiel, has become a reality. We didn't pay attention. And now we've lost everything. And it's interesting what happens with God's people at this time. Where it goes, they, they have this kind of arrogance, this blind arrogance that they're living in, where they're just entitled to everything. And all of a sudden, it just moves from one extreme To the other. They go from this kind of blind confidence to another extreme of abject hopelessness. And the people of God are devastated. They've lost it all and they're just ready to give up. They're dead. They're dead spiritually. They are just fried. Despair sets in. And there's no hope, there's no future. 
And I think this so often seems to happen in our life when we feel invulnerable, we feel like we're at the top of the world, we feel like, you know, there's nothing that can, that can mess up our, our lives, our, our marriage is invulnerable, our, our work, we're, our relationships, the things that we're doing are so successful. Nothing could, I, I can't fail. Nothing, nothing could trip me up. And then it happens. And we go from this blind confidence to this absolute hopelessness. There is no future for tomorrow. There is, there is no God. Why would he allow this to happen? My marriage is done. There's no chance to rescue this. Whatever it is that has fallen apart, there's no chance for redemption. How often we swing from one extreme to the other, or we just find ourselves hopeless. There is no hope. And God's people are here, and they're devastated. And this prophet, who's called by God, who's giving this warning, all of a sudden, his tone starts to change. He's giving a warning to the people about the things that are destructive that are coming for them. And all of a sudden, now he's speaking to this people who've lost everything and are devastated. And his tone goes from warning to something that's more hopeful. As the people are faithless and in despair, as life hasn't worked out for them, all of a sudden this prophetic word that comes from God through Ezekiel turns to a message of hope. And he starts to use this language like God's coming and he's going to take your heart of stone and remove it and give you a heart of flesh, something that is alive, not something that's cold, something that is warm and beating. And it's right about this time that he starts to tell this story of another vision he has of the valley of the dry bones. And it's interesting as he starts to speak to God's people, he starts to say that God's people are like this this valley of dry bones where there's no life. It's dead. And when you think about like seeing a skeleton, how dead, dead skeleton is, that's dead. I mean, if you come across like a wreck on a street and you see a body laying there, your first thought is this might be we get this person to a hospital. Call the paramedics. But if you came across a skeleton on the side of the road, you would have been like, wonder how long this body's been here, right? There's no hope. And when Ezekiel starts to communicate the the spiritual climate of God's people, he uses this idea of skeletons. And then he's given this word from God. He says, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people. I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. He says, you will see a vast army. He uses this line, which I think may be one of the most powerful lines in Scripture, found here in Ezekiel. He says, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. This is the message of hope that God gives his people. I have come that you may have life. You feel like this is something that's dead. You feel like this situation is something that's hopeless. You feel like your life isn't going where, anywhere but I have come that you may have life and I will put my spirit in you and you will live. This is the same message Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, where he says, the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, to the fullness. God desires for his people to experience life, that there's always hope. We are the people of resurrection. This passage from 2,500 years ago, There's this vision of dry bones getting tendons, getting flesh and blood, standing up and walking, becoming a vast army, and living again. 
Ezekiel's message turns to hope. I get really queasy around blood. Some of you know this. When I was in college, um, I was very poor, like most college students, and I was playing baseball, so I wasn't working. And I had a, a, a man from Indiana, an Adams County boy, that was living on my floor. His name's Phil Compton. Some of you know him. And Phil uh, would, uh, told me a way I could make money. And he said, you know, I go down to the blood bank twice a week, and I donate my plasma. And I was like, what is plasma? And he's like, well, it's this thing that's in your blood that they pay money for. And I was like, interesting. What do I do? And he goes, well, you go down to the blood bank, and they pull a pint of blood out of your body, and they spin the plasma out of it, and then they put the pint of blood back in your body, and then they give you 25 bucks. And I was like, 25 bucks, that's great. And he goes, and if you go again, they give you another 25 bucks. That's 50 bucks a week. And he's like, you can go twice a week. That's, you know, four times a month, eight times a month. I was like, that's what I need to do. That's how I'll make money. And he's like, it's not for everybody, though. Um, so, you know, if, you, if you're good at, like, you know, donating blood and that, that kind of thing, you, you'd probably be fine. And I was like, well, I, I don't like donating blood. I, I get, like, I, like, pass out. And he goes, well, here's the trick. You just need to eat a lot before you go. Just eat a lot of food. You'll have strength. You won't even feel anything. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try this. So I decided I'm going to go and, you know, donate plasma and make some money. I'll go do it right before baseball practice because, you know, that's when my time my schedule is. And, <laughs> So lunch that day, I like, went to the cafeteria and ordered, like, let me get a cheeseburger and like, a slice of pizza and a gyro. And uh, that way, I've got energy. So when I go and give blood, and I go with Phil, and we're sitting there like, in the waiting room. And this guy walks out. And as he's walking out, I remember him because I always thought he looked like Jesus. He had like, long hair and a beard. And he looked like a ghost. And like, he walks out and just passes out. And I was like, oh my goodness. And Phil's like, making fun of him. And I'm like, what do they do to you in there? He's like, oh, he probably just got queasy. I was like, okay. So go, and they hook me up to this machine, and uh, they're like, okay, we're going to pull a pint of your blood out of you. And, and what you don't realize is that all of the blood is, like, right next to you in this machine, <laughs> and it's spinning. And so, like, I'm, like, trying not to look at it. And here's the other thing is you only have, like, nine pints of blood in your body. So they're, like, basically removing one-ninth of your life or one-eighth of your life. And... So as, as I'm going to like donate plasma, I'm sitting there, and I'm hooked up to this machine trying not to look at it, already queasy. And then the most bizarre sensation comes over me. Like, I feel like I'm bleeding to death. Like, this is what it's like when you get stabbed in war and you just bleed out. Like, you just die. And, and they're pulling all this blood out of me, and I feel the life draining from me. And I feel like the sweat starts at the top of my head, and it just starts to pour down, down from me, and my feet go numb. I can't feel my feet at all. And my thought was, they took too much. They took too much. They, didn't, they weren't paying attention, and they have pulled out too much blood, and I'm going to die right here. And like, no one's checking on me, and I just kind of start moaning. And all of a sudden, a nurse comes up to me, and she's like, wow, you look really green. I'm like, that's because I'm dead. I'm dying. I'm like, I would be dead already. And she goes, oh, goodness, like, you don't look like you're doing well. And I'm like, I'm not doing well. And then out of nowhere, without being able to stop it, all of a sudden, all of the food that I've been eating starts to come up. And I'm lying on my back, kind of reclined, just like food coming out. And the nurse is like, oh, no. And like, all these nurses come running, and they're trying to clean me up. 
And I am like, I'm, I am dead. This is like, there's going to be a story about how this like, you know, small town hospital wasn't paying attention and a college student came in and they bled him out and now he's dead. <laughs> this ter- like, and so we get to this point where they've cleaned me up and finally they're like, okay, we've spun the plasma out. This blood's going to come back into you. And I remember thinking like completely exhausted, sick, in pain, embarrassed, feeling like I was dead. And all of a sudden, the blood starts to come back into my veins. And I, I will never forget that feeling. It was cool. It was life-giving. I could feel it like moving through my body. And it was bizarre sensation. And it was all of a sudden where I thought I was dead, and all of a sudden, life was coming back into me. And like the, the sweat that had started at my head, gone all the way down to my toes, started to, it was like it was being filled back up. It was like a cartoon. I don't know how else to describe it. And it was like, oh, life. Life has come back, and I could breathe again, and I could feel my feet, and I was like, oh, that wasn't so bad, (laughs) and the nurse said, we have to do that four more times to get enough plasma, and I was like, what, (laughs) and she goes, if you can't handle it, you can get off now, but we're not paying you anything, and I said, okay, let me try it again, and so (laughs) here we go, four more times I go through this process of feeling like I'm losing my life. Luckily, I had, everything had come out, so I didn't throw up again. And then the life coming back in. And then at the end, uh, after everything was done, I'm laying there and like, you're ready to get up? And I'm like, okay. They're like, you don't look good. I'm like, I'm fine. I sit up, pass out, wake up and have an IV bag in me. And, and the IV feels great. Uh, and as I'm leaving, they're like, um, we actually can't pay you because you had to buy the IV bag. So like, the whole thing was for nothing. And then they're like, don't come back. This isn't for you. And I'm like, well, I thought you had to get like two separate like, doses to get enough to, and they're like, we do. We're just going to throw your bag away. And I was like, oh, terrible experience. But I'll never remember the feelings, though, of feeling like life was draining out of me, and then life was being poured back into me. So when, when something comes and gives you life, when something comes and gives you hope, it gives you a future. And I think that we go through all sorts of experiences uh, where we just feel like we're at rock bottom. We go through experiences where we are mad at God. We don't understand God. We may, it may completely wreck our faith. We might be dead emotionally. Our spiritual life might be like dry bones. We might actually physically be a mess. The message God has for his people is I have come to give you life. And the things that you thought were hopeless, I want to restore hope in those things. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. In this story, the dry bones put together in stages. But God comes to give life to redeem things that were broken, to restore things that were lost. And he comes to you today and says, I want to give you life. Whatever your situation, it might feel like a valley of dry bones. But I want to breathe my spirit into it that you may live. I don't know what you're experiencing today. Whatever circumstance you're in, wherever you're at emotionally, wherever you're at spiritually, The valley of the dry bones gives us hope. 
It starts with belief. The Spirit of God can come into whatever situation and breathe life, breathe hope. And today I want to open our hearts to that. So Tim's going to come back up and close us with a song about God's breath that can breathe life into us as a people. Every week we end our time with communion. We go to the table. We're reminded of this life-giving death of Jesus that gives us life that's eternal, that gives us redemption from sin, that gives us salvation. We take a piece of bread. We take a cup of juice that represents the body of Christ that was broken open and his blood that was poured out. And maybe today you just need to come to the table between you and God and ask him to bring life into you. And maybe today you need to pray with someone. You need someone to just meet with you, to pray over you. And we'd love to do that too. If you'd like prayer, we'll be standing in the back uh, behind the curtains where no one's watching. Uh, Tyler will be back there. Hal will be back there. Um, We'd love to pray with you, whatever your situation. That God would just breathe life into your circumstance today. So let's take time to respond as we need to. If you're in a place that you just feel dead, seek help. Even if it's prayer, allow God to breathe in you today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this old story. A strange story. A story that would be told around a campfire about this old vision that reminds us of how you work. That you are the God that takes dead things and makes them alive. That you are the God that restores hope for those that have lost all hope. That you give us warnings about things that are destructive, but then you give us hope about things that are life-giving. Today, Lord, I just pray that this, this presence, this breath of life that, that gives life to these dry bones would meet this community today in this room. That you would breathe into us life. We come before you now, Lord, and just ask you to move in our hearts, and our soul, and our circumstances. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.